0: I'm going to tell you fascists, you may be surprised People in this world are getting organized You're bound to lose, you fascists bound to lose
1: so I recently watched the little-known uh, Werner Herzog film, or I should say, lesser-known uh, Werner Herzog film, *Wings of Hope*. Uh, have you seen that one?
2: You know, would you believe I have not? That is one of that is one of the few that I have not seen. So I'm sorry, I won't have much to contribute. Tell me what it is.
1: <laughs> you haven't you haven't seen this one, but you've seen like the Have you watched like the Kuwait one where there's like no actual voiceover and it's just kind of like an art film? Yeah, that's beautiful. *Lessons
2: of Darkness*. I mean, there is a there is some voiceover at the Start because he sort of depoliticizes it. Well, he doesn't depoliticize it, but he changes the politics of it by saying, This is footage from an unknown planet. Uh, And in (laughs) fact, when when that film came out, Lessons of Darkness, many criticized him for uh, aestheticizing the horrors, which I don't think time has been kind to that judgment. But anyway, go ahead.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I have to say, I uh, actually never got through that one. And I think it was because, and it's probably the only Werner Herzog film I've ever. Turned off. I mean, mainly it was just I wasn't in the mood to watch like a fairly sort of plotting uh, oh, art film. Oh uh, But <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't in the mood to watch it that night. What I, what can I say? Um, but I do think I I did have a little bit of that feeling that he was unhelpfully depoliticizing it a bit. So maybe uh, maybe we can watch that sometime and have another like crossfire style episode like we did with our recent take on Adam McKay's Vice, which uh, you know people seem to like hearing us uh, at each other's throats.
2: Um, so yeah, uh, wings of Hope. Tell me about this one. What happens in it?
1: So Wings of Hope. uh, This was a made for TV one. I don't know. I I would recommend this one. You know, it's just a really fun, like, 50 minute sit. I mean, it's an incredible story. I mean, it's one of these things that Herzog finds and is able to tell a really compelling story about. It's a story of a woman named Julianne who was a German woman who uh, spent a lot of time in Peru growing up. And uh, one day she was taking a flight uh, over the Andes, and uh, basically the plane disintegrated <laughs> in midair. It was <laughs> apparently hit by lightning. You know, it was this notoriously bad airline, but, you know, it had these cheap seats. So she and her mom got on this plane. One of the reasons for Herzog's interest in it is that he had tried to book a seat on the same plane and uh, couldn't get a ticket. So if if this airline had been a little better at uh, sorting out their ticketing situation, uh, Werner Herzog would have also have been on this flight and he, uh, he probably would have died. Now, Julianne was the only person to survive this crash. And I mean, it doesn't even seem like it was so much a crash. I mean, the plane was hit by lightning and seems to have just broken up in midair. And as she tells the story, I mean, she remembers being in the cabin. I mean, it's terrifying. <laughs> I'm going to be on a plane later this week, for God's sake. <laughs> I mean, she, she tells the story of being, of being in the cabin and everything was flying around the cabin as the plane nosedived. And then I just wasn't in the cabin and I was looking down, still in my seat, at the canopy of the trees below as it was just spinning towards me. Somehow, falling out of the plane over the Andes and landing in the trees did not kill her. And partly because she'd grown up in Peru, or partly grown up in Peru, she kind of knew what to do. She knew that if you're lost in the jungle and you're trying to find a way to where there are people, you follow the water because the streams will eventually go to rivers and those will take you to larger pathways where there'll be boats, etc. Uh, she did take a wrong turn at one point. She, was, I mean, she couldn't have known, but at one point, uh, you know, she was like a day or two from where there were people. And because of, uh, again, another twist of fate, uh, she ended up traveling for 10 days on foot and uh, somehow surviving. So the film is the story of that. And uh, I don't know, it's uh, it's pretty incredible. It's not a very well-known film, but uh, it's kind of a tie-in, I guess you could say, with uh, Agira: The Wrath of God, because Herzog was nearly on the plane. The reason he was in the area at all is, is because he was location scouting for that movie. And I think a lot of uh, Julianne's uh, walk through the jungle, her very uh, dangerous walk through the jungle, I mean, took place like not that far from where uh, Aguirre of the Wrath of God was shot. So if, if you like Herzog documentaries and uh, you haven't seen that one, uh, I recommend it.
2: Well, funny you should bring up Herzog because I'm still in Berlin right now. In fact, I'll be getting on a plane tomorrow. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be thinking a lot about what you just said. But last week I went to see the new documentary Werner Herzog Radical Dreamer, which is playing theatrically in Berlin right now. And it's this new—I mean, every director gets a documentary like this if they last long enough, you know? It's a sort of hagiography that— Zips through the life and career, and you know, you've got all the heavy hitters come in and do interviews. Christian Bale, Robert Pattinson is here. Um, Vim Vendors shows up to pay his respects, as well as you know, family members and the like. I mean, you know, it's not very good, it is what it is. It's kind of entertaining, <laughs> but there, it's like there's a lot in there about, like, oh, and he's really popular in America now. uh You know, here's a clip of him on The Simpsons. Here's a clip of, you know, it is not a significant bullet. You know? know, all, all that stuff. And, and, you know, it's kind of fun just because it's like, oh, yeah, there's the dancing chicken again. There's the ski jumpers. There's the boat getting pulled over the mountain. There's Kinski on the raft. You know, you get it's to... like,
1: it's like a, it just sounds like a speed run through all your favorite Werner Herzog moments. Absolutely. He says the old stories again. But there's
2: one section in it that I actually found quite significant. They take him to, you know, significant sites from his life and career, and they take him to his childhood home in Munich where he lived probably lower middle class maybe upper lower class i don't know he was he was not that well <laughs> off growing up and he goes to this waterfall in a nearby forest that he points to and he says all of us have an inner landscape. This is my inner landscape. You know, this is the most important site in my life, this waterfall in the forest. And he he says words to the effect of, I never knew where the source of the water was. And of course, I could find out now. It would be very easy to just climb this and take a look at where the source of the water is. But I don't want to know. I'd rather it be a mystery. And I think this is kind of central to the Herzog project. I mean, he's somebody who is endlessly curious. He's filmed on every continent, literally every continent. And yet there are sharp walls that he erects at times. There are moments when he says, no, I should not know this. You should not know this. I mean, one example is him listening to the audio of Timothy Treadwell being killed and saying, you must never listen to this. But there there are many things that he did. Like if you've ever read an interview with him, you'll know that, you know, he has no interest in film theory or film criticism. There's a lot that he doesn't want to hear about, and I think this kind of gets at it. It's like, he's endlessly curious about things up until the point when it removes their poetry. And that's the point that he doesn't want to go past.
1: Yeah, I mean, I never really thought about it like that, but it sounds like that kind of sums up his sensibility uh, perfectly. So, I don't know, instead of doing an episode on that, maybe we should just do an episode in the future on another great Herzog film. I know we talked about doing uh, Streisand Uh, One I'm particularly fond of that I think fewer people have probably seen is Heart of Glass. Mm -hmm. One of the weirdest Herzog films, like even for a Herzog film, incredibly strange.
2: Well, anyway, welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, (laughs) here as always with...
1: Luke Savage, welcome back, everyone. And yeah, sorry about that. Uh, we were not planning to do a Werner Herzog-themed cold open, but uh, yeah, Will and I have not had a beer in, in person or seen each other since he went to Europe uh, a few months ago, and I guess you're you're back soon, so uh, perhaps we can have those conversations uh, off mic like we used to do before we monetized our friendship through this <laughs> podcast. But welcome back, everyone.
2: So uh, we do have a movie to talk about, and I can think of No better movie to talk about on this episode than Bound for Glory, a film about Woody Guthrie. Because before we get to that, there's a news item of great significance to talk about. This really unfolded a couple of days ago. We're getting to it uh, a little bit late, but I think it's worth getting to. And this is the rail strike that there was some bipartisan consensus needed to be crushed in the United States.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, so the the strike didn't actually take place, but it was uh, looming, I guess, is the the nomenclature you usually see. Uh, There was, you know, a harmful strike looming, which uh, Congress averted. That's the kind of language that I've been seeing in places like, you know, Reuters and the Associated Press. But I want to talk about this for a few reasons. I mean, one, just because it's a it's a complete and total outrage. But also, I think because um, judging by I mean, this is anecdotal. And I mean, people say Twitter isn't real life. Don't draw too many conclusions from things you see uh, online. But I mean, just anecdotally, based on what I've been seeing online, the duplicitous uh, line that Democratic leaders have adopted in the wake of all of this has really obscured for a lot of people what actually happened here, which is that uh, Joe Biden, and the Democrats trampled on basically basic and fundamental labor rights the most uh, you know Amtrak Joe the most Quote unquote most pro-labor president in American history spearheaded the effort, which is forcing over 100,000 people who work on America's railways to go back to work without getting any movement on their key demand, which is paid sick time. Now, there's a lot we could talk about here. And I want to say more about the democratic hypocrisy on this in a second. But it really has to be said just for some, some background on what was at stake in this particular labor dispute. The work that's done on the railways is incredibly exploited even by the standards of the US economy. I think in many ways, the trajectory in this industry over the past few decades is kind of an accelerated and in many ways worse version of what's been happening in the economy as a whole. You know, the the railways, which are, you know, a vital public asset that serves an important public function, but they're privately owned. And owning things uh, and running them for profit, having them be privately owned and run for profit is supposed to make, you know, services more efficient. Railways have always been a particularly good case study for why that's not true. Because, you know, if you own, if you have competition on different sections of rail, if if you go to Britain and try to take the train there, you know, British Rail was sold off in the nineties by John Major's government. And it's an absolute nightmare. It's a nightmare for everybody because you have different companies that own little chunks of track. I don't know how it is for moving freight, but if you're just a passenger trying to get from one part of the country to another, it's very expensive. You know, the trains are not very nice, the companies are often not very profitable, which means they have to be bailed out constantly. You can't just like turn off a section of the train tracks because a company uh, fails. In the United States, actually. These companies are very profitable and they become more and more profitable, partly because uh, the people who own them have begun to engage in ever more uh, ridiculous methods of uh, paying themselves out, bigger and bigger dividends poured out to shareholders. Uh, Meanwhile, they have cut back uh, huge numbers of jobs because obviously that saves them on labor costs. The result is, you know, there are not enough people to work on these railways because they don't want to hire them. And the people who do work on them have to work shifts. They can run up as long as 80 hours. There is zero paid sick time for any of them. So if someone has a family emergency or something like that, you know, if they need to take time off work for any reason, they can actually be penalized. Many of them have to be, when they're not on the clock, uh, they have to be ready to go into work for a shift. They have to be on call you know, to show up for a shift within as little as 90 minutes. And at some of these companies, uh, including BNSF, which happens to be owned by you know the, the everyone's favorite good liberal billionaire, Warren Buffett, workers there basically start the job with a point balance that diminishes every time they're unavailable for work. So if they're sick and they can't go to work, like literally if they have COVID and they can't go to work, they get docked points. And if their balance reaches zero, they can be suspended. And if that happens enough times, they can be fired. So, you know, it's an absolutely horrible situation. Uh, throughout COVID, you know, these people had to keep working for much of the time. They have not had a raise in three years. That That's where things are at. Now, there had been this possibility of a strike. The deadline uh, was going to be a few days from now. It was going to be on December the 9th. And what happened last week, uh, even though I think many people are under the impression that something other than this happened, but what happened last week is that the Biden administration decided it was not going to let a strike happen under any circumstances. And uh, it made clear that, you know, it wanted Congress to intervene and impose a contract. There'd been this tentative agreement that Marty Walsh, the uh, Secretary of Labor, had worked out, you know, it was this this deal that uh, had been worked out in September. Now, a number of the unions rejected this deal. It did not include any concession on the sick days, but the administration decided that it was going to try to impose this deal regardless. Now, this, this case feels like uh, so many other cases in the past where Democrats, you know, they actually initiate doing the bad thing, but then a lot of people get it in their heads that this is just, you know, Republican obstruction or something. Um, that is not what happened here, okay? Last Monday, the Biden White House issued a statement which called on Congress, I quote, to pass legislation immediately to adopt the tentative agreement between rail workers and operators without any modifications or delay to avert a Potentially crippling national rail shutdown. So then, uh, a few paragraphs later, just to underscore this point, the statement read Some in Congress want to modify the deal to either improve it for labor or management. However, well intentioned any changes would risk delay and a debilitating shutdown, the agreement was reached in good faith by both sides. So Uh, this statement made only a very uh, kind of perfunctory and passing reference to the sick days issue at all. Very typical uh, kind of liberal triangulation. Uh, Biden says, you know, as a proudly pro-labor president, you know, I'm reluctant to impose a contract, but uh, we need to do so without delay. We need to, we, there cannot be a strike under any circumstances. Now, what happened after this early last week, I think about Tuesday was there was a tremendous backlash. And so what then happened is that Nancy Pelosi, who is outgoing as house speaker she announced that there were actually going to be two votes there was going to be one vote to you know impose the contract which is what the administration wanted and then there was going to be another vote to include seven paid sick days in the deal and so I understand I suppose you know if, if you're just a casual news consumer and you're kind of generally sympathetic towards the Democratic Party and you like to think that when people like Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg or Nancy Pelosi are talking to you, uh, they're not lying through your teeth. I can understand why, if you know that's kind of your disposition, you could have a mistaken impression of what went on here. Pelosi allowed these two votes and again I can see how people would get the wrong impression here Uh, most Democrats in the House and then the Senate uh, voted for the inclusion of sick days they actually got a majority in the Senate because a bunch of Republicans voted for it as well Uh, although because of some obscure rule from the 19th century you need uh, you need 60 votes to pass this so uh, with a majority of votes it didn't pass now I think to some people looking at this and watching Pete Buttigieg be interviewed on TV or whatever they look at this and they see uh, okay well Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden say that they support sick days for the rail workers. And look, the Democrats in the House and Senate voted for these things. So, you know, the problem is just that, uh, you know, not enough Republicans voted for them. Now, that sounds good. uh, But unfortunately, absolutely none of it was true. And I want to say a few things about this. First of all, as you saw from the statement by Biden that I just read, the imperative right from the beginning of the week was not imposing a contract uh, that included these sick days. It was imposing a contract without them. That is explicitly what the language in Biden's statement said they wanted to do and it's what they did actively seek to do and what they ultimately achieved by the end of last week. Uh, secondly, Pelosi did not have to hold two votes on this, right? You, you know, they could have put this to the House and then later the Senate and said, OK, uh, you don't want to have a strike well, you're going to have to include the sick days. And this is going to be one vote. And you can vote for both, or you can give a thumbs down to the sick days. And you know, hey, maybe there wouldn't have been the votes uh, in the House and Senate for that. I, I really don't know. I mean, probably not. But that brings us I think, to what the fundamental point is here, which is the Democrats didn't need to do any of this at all, right? There was no need for Congress to intervene. When a Democratic president especially intervenes on the side of management, which is what Biden did here, uh, what you're effectively saying, and you're not just saying this to rail CEOs you're not just saying it to you know Warren Buffett you're saying it to the heads of large companies uh, with unionized workforces everywhere you're saying you know don't worry if your workers vote to give their leaders uh, a strike mandate it doesn't matter. We will intervene. We're, you're not going to have to deal with a strike. So uh, this is not just an attack on the rights of rail workers. It's an attack on basic labor rights everywhere. And you know, I think this is the this is the fundamental point that a lot of people who are just seeing the margins of these votes in Congress on the sick leave and they're seeing that you know Democrats you know are saying nice things about sick time and how workers deserve them and they're seeing that a majority of Democrats in the House and Senate voted for them. This is the thing that they're missing. Congress did not have to intervene at all. The White House did not have to intervene at all. The best tool that the 12 unions who represent rail workers in America uh, had at their disposal here was their right to strike. Would that have been disruptive? Yes, if they had gone on strike, it absolutely would have been disruptive. Guess what? That's the whole point of having a strike, to be disruptive so that management has to make concessions. And that's what the Democratic leadership has taken away from these workers through its conduct over the past uh, 10 days. You can blame Republicans all you want. The fact is that Amtrak Joe just crushed a strike.
2: This train is bound
1: for glory, this train.
0: This train is bound for glory, this train. She's my curly-headed baby Come from sunny Tennessee. Jesus was a man
1: a by hand.
2: Well, speaking of the working man, uh, our movie on this episode <laughs> is 1976's Bound for Glory, directed by Hal Ashby, a biopic of the folk singer Woody Guthrie played here by David Carradine Uh, this movie was quite acclaimed in its day it was uh, Oscar nominated for Best Picture although I don't feel it's particularly well remembered or widely seen anymore I'd certainly never seen it before had you?
1: I had not seen it and actually uh, before I forget I do want to thank Michael and us listener uh, Toronto Michael and us listener uh, David Parkinson for I think telling me about the movie uh, certainly for for originally sending it to me Uh, I did find finally watched the movie from the file that David sent me, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago. But no, I had never seen the movie uh, until now. And uh, I suggested we watch it, partly because, you know, it had been sent to me a while back, but also just because I was keen to see it and, uh, you know, looked forward to the opportunity of uh, discussing Woody Guthrie, which I don't think we've done on this show before.
2: And also because this is our second David Carradine movie in a row, believe it or not. Uh, (laughs) I'm I'm sure
1: that probably,
2: uh, would you believe it? It never rains, but it pours so we went 380 episodes without David Carradine showing up once. And now here he is uh, <laughs> twice in two weeks.
1: Um, it's also, I believe, the second Hal Ashby film that uh, we watched on the podcast. I mean, speaking of Joe Biden, you know, I don't always remember, you know, we've done so many episodes, uh, you know, I remember them if, you know, I listened to them. But, you know, one I remember pretty well without listening to it, just because I remember the circumstances around it was one based on another Hal Ashby film, a uh, film I'm very fond of, Being There, which I remember we watched... I think it it must have been in late March or early April of 2020, and it was as the entire world was going to shit, and it was as it was becoming clear that Joe Biden was almost certainly going to be the Democratic nominee for president, and that, you know, whatever window of radical possibility had seemed to exist for, I don't know, 12 weeks, however long it was, was hastily uh, diminishing. Kind of a melancholy episode for that reason, but I really did like the film because I love Hal Ashby. We'll have to talk about Harold and Maude, but, uh... I love Hal Ashby, so uh, it was uh, really cool to watch Bound for Glory.
2: Well, I enjoyed Bound for Glory. Uh, I don't really have an original take on it. Uh, It is pungent with atmosphere. Uh, The cinematography by Haskell Wexler, which was so widely praised in its day, uh, really is extraordinary. I mean, in particular, that one shot of Carradine strumming on his guitar in the moving train while the sun is setting behind him. Really Ugh. good. But but I mean, this movie just as a whole, like visually, the industry-wide switch to digital video has had benefits, but we all know that something has been lost and that is the sort of visual texture that film can provide. Like there's a sharpness to digital, but you look at a movie like this or McCabe and Mrs. Miller, oh, yeah. there's a softness. And also, I, I mean, something I like about this movie is so many period movies, particularly period movies that are made now, have such a burnished sheen so heavily color corrected a movie like this it looks like an actual place where people actually lived and breathed it actually feels sort of like you're in the 1930s and i like that it's a movie about poverty that is beautiful you know i, I recently saw sarah polly's film women talking which you know very well-meaning film <laughs> which is not what you say about a movie when you liked it. But uh, among its issues is it's shot entirely in these gray porridge tones, as if to say this is a very serious movie. You know, you you, are not here to have a good time. This movie looks very serious. And I like that. This is a movie that's very much about like poverty and just the hardness of the itinerant life that so many people were living. That also looks just, just incredibly beautiful. Like there's just so much of, of the beauty of, of America in it. Um, I, I will say that this movie is two and a half hours long and I found it a little less than riveting. It's a film that's about the accumulation of detail I don't want to sound too hard on it because I actually do like it, but I felt the length. Let's put it that way.
1: Well, I want to get to that because I do think that uh, this film did defy my expectations somewhat. And, um, you know, the issue Will just raised, I think, is kind of, in some ways, the central issue uh, when you're evaluating and interpreting this film. Uh, I do want to set the stage a little bit by talking more generally about Woody Guthrie. The film is based on Woody Guthrie's autobiography published in uh, 1942 or 43, I'm forgetting which, uh, his autobiography of the same title, Bound for Glory. Now, the book is kind of a, I don't know, an act of self Self-mythologization, I suppose, it is kind of telling the ecstatic truth of his life up to that point. It is more or less explicit about the fact that it's giving you a kind of uh, a fictionalized account. But it's quite a remarkable book, and I found a line uh, in a review of it uh, that was published in the New Yorker in um, 1943 from a writer named Clifton Fadiman, who responding to the book, uh, having just read it, said, someday people are going to wake up to the fact that Woody Guthrie and the 10,000 songs that leap and tumble off the strings of his music box are a national possession, like Yellowstone and Yosemite. And I do think that that is more or less Guthrie's reputation. You know, I think he has been adopted as a kind of beloved national figure, um, which is a pretty improbable achievement for somebody like Woody Guthrie. I mean, to have achieved that kind of mythic status, despite a lifelong support for workers and for radical causes. I think there's some dispute as to whether Woody Guthrie was ever actually a member of a communist organization. Uh, Some people claim that he was, I mean, he was certainly immersed in that milieu. At one point, he does seem to have had um, a very particular kind of partisanship for the USSR, so he briefly flirted in 1939 and 1940 with opposition to US entry into the war, but then when Russia was attacked by Nazi Germany. He changed his tune on that, but he was certainly a guy whose politics, I think, make him an improbable figure to to have the modern reputation uh, that he does. And to set the stage a little bit, I want to read the foreword from my edition of Bound for Glory, which was written by another great folk singer, Pete Seeger. And I think for those unfamiliar, although I imagine uh, most of you listening are at least somewhat familiar with Woody Guthrie, I think this provides some useful background on Woody Guthrie and why he's so special. Seeger writes, One of Woody Guthrie's last songs, written a year after he entered the hospital, was titled, I Ain't Dead Yet. The doctors told him he had Huntington's chorea, probably inherited, a progressive degeneration of the nervous system for which there was no cure known. For 13 more years, he hung on, refusing to give up. Finally, he could no longer walk, nor talk, nor focus his eyes, nor feed himself, and his great will to live was not enough and his heart stopped beating. The news reached me while I was on tour in Japan. All I could think of at first was Woody will never die as long as there are people who like to sing his songs. Dozens of those are known by guitar pickers across the USA and one of them has become loved by tens of millions of Americans. This land is your land, this land is my land, from California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. He was a short, wiry guy with a mop of curly hair under a cowboy hat as I first saw him. He'd stand with his guitar slung on his back, spinning out stories like Will Rogers with a faint, wry grin. Then he'd hitch his guitar around and sing the longest long outlaw ballad you've ever heard, or some rebelasian fantasy he'd concocted the day before and might never sing again. His songs were deceptively simple. Only after they have become part of your life do you realize how great they are. Any damn fool can get complicated. It takes genius to attain simplicity. Woody's songs for children are now sung in many languages. Why can't a dish break a hammer? Why a why? Because a hammer's got a pretty hard head. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. His music stayed rooted in the blues, ballads, and breakdowns he'd been raised on in the Oklahoma Dust Bowl. Like Scotland's Robbie Burns and the Ukraine's Taras Shevenko, Woody was a national folk poet. Like them, he came out of a small town background, knew poverty, had a burning curiosity to learn. Like them, his talent brought him to the city where he was lionized by the literati, but from whom he declared his independence and remained his own profane, radical, ornery self. This honesty also eventually estranged him from his old Oklahoma cronies. Like many an Oklahoma farmer, he had long taken a dim view of bankers. In the desperate early Depression years, he developed a religious view of Christ the Great Revolutionary. In the cities, he threw in his lot with the labor movement. There was once a union made, she never was afraid, of goons and ginks and company finks, and the deputy sheriff that made the raids. He broadened his feeling to include the working people of all the world, and it may come as a surprise to some readers to know that the author of This Land Is Your Land was in 1940 a columnist for the small newspaper he euphemistically called The Sabbath Employee. It was the Sunday Worker, weekend edition of the Communist Daily Worker. Woody never argued theory much, but you can be quite sure that today he would have poured his fiercest scorn on the criminal fools who sucked America into the Vietnam mess. But Woody always did more than condemn. His song Pastors of Plenty described the life of the migrant fruit pickers, but ends on a note of shining affirmation. It's always we've rambled that river and I, all along your green valley I'll work till I die, my land I'll defend with my life if it be, for my Pastors of Plenty must always be free. A generation of songwriters have learned from him. Bob Dylan, Tom Paxton, Phil Oaks, and I guess many more to come. As we scatter his ashes over the waters, I can hear Woody hollering back to us, Take it easy, but take it. So that was written by uh, Pete Seeger to accompany uh, Woody Guthrie's book, Bound for Glory. That sets up who Woody Guthrie was uh, very beautifully and uh, very elegantly and simply. Back in
0: 1927, I had a little farm and I called out heaven. Well, the price is up and the rain come down and I haul my crops all into town. and got the money, bought clothes and groceries, fed the kids and raised the family. Rain quit and the wind got high and a black hole dust storm filled the sky and I swapped my farm for a Ford machine and I poured it full of this gas Eileen and I
2: started rocking and rolling over the mountains out towards the old peach bowl. Well, the film accumulates detail more than it does plot. It takes place during the Great Depression, specifically in the South, in the midst of the Dust Bowl drought, or it begins in the South. It chronicles the several years in which Woody Guthrie rose from being a poor, humble sign painter to uh, being on the edge of stardom to finally embracing the life of a troubadour. In fact, probably the definitive troubadour. It begins he's living with his wife mary and their children uh his only skill is that he can paint signs and that's not enough so he hits the road unceremoniously he leaves them behind in texas on his way bound for california where the streets are paved with gold Uh, However, when he arrives to California, he finds that there are more laborers than there is work. There are all these migrant labor camps, you know, it's very Grapes of Wrath, where hundreds, thousands of potential laborers show up in the morning and then 30 of them are picked and the rest of them, you know, have to just stay there. In the first half, Woody is a strong believer in the idea of an honest day's work for an honest day's wage. This leads to one particularly memorable scene where, you know, he's starving. He finds a pastor at a church, asks him if there's any work he can do in exchange for a meal. And the pastor says, I'll just quote everything the pastor says. He says, I've been in the service all my life. I've seen thousands of men like you go to work for a meal. However, at this moment, there isn't any work to be done. Therefore, if I were to feed you, it would be an act of charity. Which may be all right for the moment, but could cause harm in the long run. You seem to have retained your pride and dignity since you haven't asked outright for a free meal, and that's to your credit. But to answer your question, there's no work to be done, therefore, you can't earn a meal. And the pastor then leaves poor Woody without food, having fully disavowed the idea of charity. Charity does, however, come up as a concept later when Woody goes to a soup kitchen run by a rich woman with a strong sense of noblesse oblige. He offers to paint them a sign. They insist on giving him a free soup regardless. This is all before Woody's political awakening. That happens when, at one of the migrant camps, he encounters a character named Ozark Buell, played by Ronnie Cox. He's a radio performer, a folk musician. He's also a labor organizer, somebody who through his art is constantly advocating the cause at these camps, you know, workers of the world unite. Ozark is more of a careerist, however, than Woody ever will be. He keeps trying to find ways to help Woody work his way into the entertainment industry. You know, he gets him auditions, but Woody is ultimately unable to separate his politics from his art. And there's a lot that I like in this movie's depiction of Woody's artistry. First of all, I like the way it depicts music as this shared thing. Certainly, this almost spontaneous thing from Woody Guthrie. Like, I think I think Woody Guthrie in in life wrote over a thousand songs or so. You know, there was just this constant flowing stream of creativity that came out of him. And one doesn't get the sense that he was particularly precious about these songs. Like they were things to be shared and enjoyed. They almost became like public property once he was done with them.
1: Yeah, well there's a, in one of the many wonderful scenes where he's performing on the radio, there's a great moment where you know, he tells those listening what song he's going to play and he says, you know I think he's played it before and he, and he says, uh, you know if you don't remember the words, that's fine. You can make up your own words and, and you know sing, sing those instead. So I think uh, I think you're right. That that was the way he approached uh, the songs as kind of these shared public rituals, which you know everybody owned and in which everybody could partake in. I think that's something the film captures really nicely.
2: There's another scene I liked a lot where he's auditioning for the radio. You know, he's in he's in a booth and he's singing this song. And he sings about 30 seconds of it, and the guys at the booth say, all right, Guthrie, you know, you've got the job, but he just keeps singing it. He's he's so in the zone of this song. It establishes that he's someone for whom his art and his politics are not just inseparable they have a very free-flowing indistinguishable relationship but that even extends to when he's in the zone he's going to keep singing no matter if it potentially damages his career he doesn't care he's all about his art and he's all about his politics and those things are the same all the worldly riches are unimportant next to that
0: well as i stand here in l.a from okay, the, the
2: of pony through the
0: draw uh, Where the
1: Something else I like about the movie is that I think it does resist the temptation to treat Guthrie as this kind of you know, mythic figure who's without human flaw, right? I mean, you see him, for example, tell multiple women uh, who he's smitten with that, you know, they they say, oh, I love that song you did. And he's like, well, I wrote that one just for you. And it's like, you know, that's like a line you see him use several times throughout the movie. You know, the the film depicts him as, uh, you know, somewhat prideful uh, as well as uh, principled.
2: Also a bit of a bastard to his family,
1: you know, all things considered. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Now let's talk about the issue you raised earlier, which, as I said, I think is very much the central question in interpreting this movie. You know, I think you put it very well when you said the film accumulates more detail than it does plot. Uh, And for that reason, it is kind of an unusual movie. I mean, especially, you know, it's especially unusual that it, you know, had so much popular acclaim as opposed to just critical acclaim.
2: It's also unusual in the context of a biopic, which are so often, I mean, if you've seen the movie Walk Hard, you know, music biopics have this very rigid formula, typically scenes where there's, you know, so much exposition. About I don't know why Elvis? Can you believe it? Uh, you're number one on the charts, and uh, and uh, it's the atomic age, and uh, America is repressed, and and you're giving America a release valve. <laughs> you know, it's they're like that, but but and and they're very much like one thing after another. Like oh now Elvis is in the 50s, now he's in the 60s. It's the '68 comeback special. You know, it's he's in Las Vegas, and and that this movie never really feels like it's hitting those 20 iconic Moments of Woody Guthrie's career.
1: No, and and of course, there are times when you're watching it where you kind of almost want it to do that because you're sitting there and you're thinking, like, all right, give us the big, like, you know, ecstatic Woody Guthrie moments, like, let's see, like, a big concert. Let's see, like, a really hack scene where, I don't know, he composes Pretty Boy Floyd or something <laughs> like that. And the film doesn't really have stuff like that. You're right, it's it's much more about the accumulation of of details and just kind of watching Guthrie exist in this world and, and depicting it with as much bleak but hopeful uh, realism uh, as it can. Now, I do think this makes it... You know, a little bit of an odd sitting, and um, you know, I did uh, I did check in on uh, what Roger Ebert wrote about it uh, at the time, uh, which so, you know, so I did I. Do I when, think
2: that's pretty standard <laughs> practice when we watch a movie, isn't it? Check in on yeah, Ro- Roger. Let,
1: let's ch- let's check in on www.receivedwisdom.com <laughs> um, .culture.com dot uh, culture. Uh, you know, and and you know what Ebert says about the film is, uh, you know, I think is is interesting. I think I don't ultimately agree with it. I both agree and disagree with it. He praises the film for its you know striking and beautiful images which he compares to those of Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon but then he says but the beauty is sometimes achieved at the cost of tone scene after scene unfolds at such a measured pace with such calculation and understatement that finally we seem to be watching a travelogue set during the depression. The film has a grave dignity which is good but it often seems to lack life which would be better. Um, I mean, that's just from the first paragraph of the review. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I mean, that's sort of, uh, you know, Ebert's general take on it. And I hear that, but I do think the film uh, uh, achieves—you know—it executes what Hal Ashby and um, Robert Getchell, who uh, wrote the screenplay, which was adapted from the uh, the original Guthrie book. You know, I think all of this is very much uh, intentional. Uh, I think uh, the film is trying to capture Guthrie, and you know, don't forget—I mean, it's set largely in the 1930s. I mean, it's—it's much of it takes place before Guthrie was really a known figure at all, and certainly long before he was adapted as any kind of national icon, right? It doesn't include you know if this was like uh, a Steven Spielberg movie or something right it would end with a bunch of like title cards or something accompanied by you know school children singing this land is your land or something like that Uh, this isn't that kind of film you know it's not like gee I wonder which Elvis biopic uh, Will was just riffing on a few minutes ago and I think the reason for that is that it's really trying to project Guthrie's own sensibility Guthrie's distinctive talent I think was synthesizing collective and common experiences and then assembling them in. Into simple and powerful songs that had emotional potency and mass appeal you know songs that were about the experiences of ordinary people and which communicated them in a very simple and legible way which then you know as, as folk music could be you know shared and, and modified and adapted uh, by other people for their own purposes now I think that's something the film captures very well in uh, what Will's called the accumulation of details but I think it's also something that Guthrie himself was pretty explicit about uh, in preparing for the episode I did try to find an excerpt of Guthrie reading from Bound for Glory. I'm not sure such a thing exists. Something that does exist is a 1956 record called The Songs and Stories of Woody Guthrie, uh, in which Guthrie, uh, who's voiced by this guy, Will Gear, who was uh, an actor friend of his, who was uh, blacklisted in Hollywood for refusing to name names at uh, the height of McCarthyism, so uh, another real one. He plays Guthrie, and I just want to play for you all this short clip, Geer uh, as Guthrie reading for Bound for Glory, When you play music by ear, it don't mean you wiggle your ears while you're playing
0: it. You just use your ears to remember what you hear. You sort of write down a bunch of sounds somewhere in your head and save them for future use. Sometimes you hear a tune and catch some of the words, and for a long time you go around with it roaring through your head like a lost steamboat. My mother was an ear musician. She lived seven miles out of the little county seat, Okima, Oklahoma. Songs meant a lot to her, and she collected hundreds of them in her head. And she quartered on the piano and sung tales and stories that taught me the history of our section of the country. It's weather, cyclones,
1: pretty women, love affairs, disasters, and it's outlaws. So Guthrie, I think, was somebody who very self-consciously just sort of harvested and gathered things around him, things that were in the air, tunes, stories, you know, whatever, anecdotes, characters, some of which were real, some of which were, you know, uh, made up, some of which were some combination of the two. And that was the basis for uh, you know, his own art and his own creative process, and also the thing ultimately that made him into the kind of national folk poet um, that he's now uh, recognized as.
2: Well, I've never forgiven him for going electric at Altamont. <laughs> By the way, just out of curiosity, I think you know him better than I do. As the film depicts, he was someone who turned his back on potential superstardom. Had he played the game, he could potentially—I mean, he became a sort of regional radio star— but he could potentially have become a national one and instead he traveled from coast to coast as this troubadour. How was it that he was able to become this mythical figure, this this legend without that kind of apparatus behind him?
1: I mean, I don't fully know the answer to that question, but I mean one thing is that he was just incredibly influential on on other musicians. I mean, you know, Pete Seeger, you know, who he obviously influenced as well, mentions you know a few of them uh, in uh, in that forward to the to the book which I read earlier. I mean it's even more incredible that he you know obtained the status that he did, given that he spent you know I guess the last thirteen years of his life you know basically hospital bound. I mean he was uh, he was very very ill and he was uh, you know I think unable to perform for for the entirety of that time or at least uh, for most of it. I mean something else that's incredible is I mean Woody Guthrie, I mean to my knowledge there's really only one you know real Woody Guthrie album. Which is Dust Ball Ballads. If you're looking for an introduction to Woody Guthrie, if you want to sit down and listen to him, um, I think that's where you should begin. I mean, Guthrie, as you see in the movie, uh, was just somebody who would, you know, show up to radio stations and play on them. I mean, he has songs, there are, there are lyrics to Guthrie songs that exist on his, you know, official website, but he never recorded the song. So a lot of what you can hear, I mean, there are these big compilations of him, you know, that now exist. Um, but these are these are compilations, you know, they're they're pieced together from different sessions and things like that. And Dust Bowl ballads really stands out for that reason it's among other things an early example of a concept album you know as the title suggests it's all about life on the Dust Bowl during the period that uh, the beginning of the film at least takes place in it's a very special record because you know it really is in addition to being a major artistic landmark in American music the only place where to my knowledge you can really hear you know Guthrie singing in a focused way for you know 35 straight minutes there are lots of great you know, live performances, lots of great recordings, You know, not trying to diss the, the many Guthrie compilations that are out there, but I don't know of anything quite like Dust Bowl Ballads, which really is a Woody Guthrie album in the truest sense. Now this doesn't really fit in anywhere, but I think that I would be remiss uh, to not mention that uh, at one point uh, Donald Trump's dad was actually Woody Guthrie's landlord. I'm guessing <laughs> that a lot of you listening uh, didn't actually know this, but I just want to read from a, a piece in the New Yorker on this. This was published in 2018 and it's by Amanda Petruzic. In 1950, Woody Guthrie moved into an apartment at Beach Haven, a cluster of 16 residential buildings in Gravesend, Brooklyn, just a few minutes from the creaky boardwalk and frankfurter stands at Coney Island Beach. The complex was owned and operated by Fred Trump, which means that for the two years Guthrie lived and wrote there, Trump was his landlord. It remains unsettling to accept that their signatures coexist on the same lease agreement. In the 1970s, Fred Trump was accused by the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Justice Department of creating quote, a substantial impediment to the full enjoyment of equal opportunity at Beach Haven. It appeared that he didn't like to rent apartments to black people. Guthrie didn't much like the place, and in 1954, he wrote a delightfully scornful song about Trump's discriminatory rental policies. (laughs) Several handwritten drafts of the lyrics, sometimes titled, Beach Haven Race Hate Beach Haven, Ate My Home, and Old Man Trump are presently on display at the Woody Guthrie Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Well, I'm glad to hear this
2: because certain of those Woody Guthrie songs sound very proto-mega to me. I mean, <laughs> you, you ain't got the do ray me all, all this I stuff
1: mean, about what about this land is your land. They and, call it you know, yeah, uh, I've working seen, people. I <laughs> a lot of
2: economic anxiety, quote-unquote, in these songs. <laughs>
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just want to read another few sentences from this piece because I think she does a very nice job of describing uh, Guthrie's songwriting. She says, In his best songs, Guthrie is equally seized by feelings of outrage and hope. Listening to his records is still my favorite way to remember that those feelings can productively and even beneficially coexist, that the former doesn't necessarily have to eradicate the latter. Guthrie clung to an optimistic belief in the generosity and decency of all human beings. In the end, he believed we would surely do right by one another.
2: Now, before we go, I mean, one of the things that Guthrie is best known for these days is his influence on Bob Dylan. Did Dylan not visit him in the hospital towards the end of his life even?
1: Yeah, Bob Dylan knew Woody Guthrie and was, uh, you know, very influenced by uh, his work and by his songwriting style. I mean, if you listen to, you know, there are Dylan songs on, you know, the first few Dylan albums, you know, the, the self-titled one, The Times They Are Changing, uh, Freewheeling Bob Dylan, yeah, you get the style of song where it's kind of talk singing and then Dylan is kind wailing on the harmonic in between the verses. Uh, I don't know if Guthrie invented that, but he certainly uh, popularized it among uh, certain people in the folk scene. Uh, Dylan also read uh, Bound for Glory, and uh, he writes in his own autobiography, I went through it cover to cover like a hurricane, totally focused on every word, and the book sang out to me like a radio. The very first Bob Dylan album, which is, I think, rarely listened to, this is the one that's just called Bob Dylan, it only has two original songs on it, uh, and one of them is called Song to Woody. I think that's probably the, you know, it's fair to say the best song song on it. That one borrows a melody from a really powerful Woody Guthrie song called The 1913 Massacre. Another good place to start with Guthrie if you haven't really listened to him before. Now sometime after Dylan uh, visited Guthrie in the hospital, he did a performance, uh, this was in 1963, at New York City's Town Hall and delivered a tribute to Woody Guthrie that I thought would be nice to go out on. So here's Bob Dylan on April 12th, 1963 at New York City Hall with his last thoughts on Woody Guthrie
0: there's this book coming out and they asked me to write uh, something about Woody, uh, sort of like what does Woody Guthrie mean to you in 25 words and, uh, and I couldn't do it. I wrote out five pages and uh, I have it here. I have it here by accident actually <laughs> but, but I, I'd, I'd like to say this out loud. so. Uh, If you can sort of roll along with this thing here. This is called Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie. Um, When your head gets twisted and your mind grows numb. When you think you're too old, too young, too smart or too dumb. When you're lagging behind and losing your pace in a slow motion crawl or life's busy race. No matter what you're doing, if you start giving up, if the wine don't come to the top of your cup. If the wind got you sideways with one hand holding on and the other starts slipping and the feeling is gone and your train engine fire needs a new spark to catch it and the woods easy finding but you're lazy to fetch it and your sidewalk starts curling and the street gets too long and you start walking backwards so you know that it's wrong and lonesome comes up as down goes the day and tomorrow's morning seems so far away and you feel the rains from your pony are slipping and your ropes are sliding cause your hands are dripping and your sun de- desert and evergreen valleys turn to broken down slums and trash can alleys and your sky cries water and your drain pipes are porn and the lightnings are flashing and the thunders are crashing and the windows are rattling and breaking and the rooftops are shaking and your whole worlds a slamming and banging and your minutes of sun turn to hours of storm and to yourself you sometimes say I never knew it was going to be this way why didn't they tell me the day I was born and you start getting chills and you're jumping from sweat and you're looking for something you ain't quite found yet and you're knee deep in dark water with your hands in the air and the whole world's watching with a window peaks stare and your good gal leaves and she's long gone a-flying and your heart feels sick like fish when they're frying and your jackhammer falls from your hands to your feet, but you need it badly and it lays on the street. And your bell's banging loudly, but you can't hear its beat. And you think your ears might have been hurt, or your eyes have turned filthy from the sight-binding dirt. And you figured you failed in yesterday's rush, and you were faked out and fooled while facing the four flush, and all the time you're holding three queens. It's making you mad, it's making you mean, like in the middle of Life magazine bouncing around a pinball machine. And there's something on your mind that you want to be saying that somebody someplace ought to be hearing. But it's trapped on your tongue, sealed in your head. And it bothers you badly when you're laying in bed. And no matter how you try, you just can't say it. And you're scared to your soul, you just might forget it. And your eyes get swimming so from the tears in your head. And your pillows of feathers turn to blankets of lead. And the lion's mouth opens. And you're staring at his teeth. And his jaws start closing with you underneath. And you're flat on your belly with your hands tied behind. And you wish you'd never taken that last detour sign. You say to yourself, just what am I doing? On this road, I'm walking. On this trail, I'm turning. On this curve I'm hanging, on this pathway I'm strolling, in the space I'm taking, in this air I'm inhaling. Am I mixed up too much? Am I mixed up too hard? Why am I walking? Where am I running? What am I saying? What am I knowing on this guitar I'm playing? On this banjo I'm feeling, on this mandolin I'm strumming, in this song I'm singing, in the tune I'm humming, in the words that I'm thinking, in the words I'm writing, in this ocean of hours I'm all the time drinking. Who am I helping? What am I breaking? What am I giving? What am I taking? But you try with your whole soul best never to think these thoughts and never to let them kind of thoughts gain ground or make your heart pound. But then again, you know when they're around, just waiting for a chance to slip and drop down. Because sometimes you hear them when the night time come creeping and you fear they might catch you sleeping. And you jump from your bed from the last chapter of dreaming and you can't remember for the best of your thinking if that was you in a dream that was screaming. And you know that's something special you're needing. You know there's no drug that'll do for the healing and no liquor in the land to stop your brain from bleeding. You need something special, you need something special, all right. You need a fast-flying train on a tornado track to shoot you someplace and shoot you back. You need a cyclone wind on a steam engine howler that's been banging and booming and blowing forever that knows your troubles a hundred times over. You need a greyhound bus that don't bar no race that won't laugh at your looks, your voice, or your face, and by any number of bets in the book, will be rolling long after the bubblegum craze. You need something to open up a new door to show you something you've seen before but overlooked a hundred times or more. You need something to open your eyes. You need something to make it known that it's you and no one else that owns, that spot that you're standing, that space that you're sitting in, that the world ain't got you beat. It ain't got you licked. It can't get you crazy no matter how many times you might get kicked. You need something special, all right. You need something special to give you hope. But hope's just a word that maybe you said maybe you heard on some windy corner around a wide-angle curve. But that's what you need, man, and you need it bad. And your trouble is you know it too good, because you look and you start getting the chills, because you can't find it on a dollar bill, and it ain't on Macy's windowsill. And it ain't on a real rich kid's road map, and it ain't made in no fat kid's fraternity house, and it ain't made in no Hollywood wheat germ, and it ain't on that dim-lit stage with that half-wit comedian on it ranting and raving and taking your money and you think it's funny. Now you can't find it neither in no nightclub, no yacht club, and it ain't in the seats of a supper club, and sure as hell you're bound to tell, no matter how hard you rub, you just ain't gonna find it on your ticket stub. No, it ain't in the rumors people are telling you, and it ain't in the pimple lotion people are selling you, and it ain't in the cardboard box house or down in any movie star's blouse, and you can't find it on the golf course. And Uncle Remus can't tell you, and neither can Santa Claus. And ain't the cream puff hairdo or cotton candy clothes, ain't the dime store dummies and bubblegum goons, and ain't the marshmallow noises or the chocolate cake voices that come knocking and tapping and Christmas wrapping, saying, Ain't I pretty and ain't I cute? Look at my skin, look at my skin shine, look at my skin glow, look at my skin laugh, look at my skin cry when you can't even sense they've got any insides, these people so pretty in their ribbons and bows. Now you'll not now or no other day find it on the doorsteps made of paper mache and inside with the people made of molasses that every other day buy a new pair of sunglasses. And then in the fifty-star generals and flipped out phonies who turn you in for a tenth of a penny, who breathe and burp and bend and crack and before you can count from one to ten do it all over again, but this time behind your back, my friend. The ones that wheel and deal and whirl and twirl and play games with each other in the sandbox world you can't find it either in the no-talent fools that run around gallant and make all the rules for the ones that got talent. ain't the ones that ain't got any talent but think they do and think they're fooling you. The ones that jump on the wagon just for a while cause you know it's in style. To get their kicks, get out of it quick and make all kinds of money and chicks. And you yell to yourself and you throw down your hat saying, Christ, do I gotta be like that? Ain't there no one here that knows where I'm at? Ain't there no one here that knows how I feel? Good God almighty, that stuff ain't real. No, but that ain't your game, it ain't your race. You can't hear your name, you can't see your face, you gotta look some other place. And where do you look for this hope that you're seeking? Where do you look for this lamp that's burning? Where do you look for this oil well gushing? Where do you look for this candle that's glowing? Where do you look for this hope that you know is there and out there somewhere? And your feet can only walk down two kinds of roads. Your eyes can only look through two kinds of windows. Your nose can only smell two kinds of hallways. You can touch and twist and turn two kinds of doorknobs. You can either go to the church of your choice or you go to Brooklyn State Hospital. You find God in the church of your choice, you find Woody Guthrie in Brooklyn State Hospital. I know it's only my opinion, I may be right or wrong, you find them both in Grand Canyon, sundown.